0: This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette.
1: And I'm Jarrett Murphy from City Limits, and this is the first of several Max and Murphys we'll be talking to candidates running for mayor, and today we are very pleased to be joined by Robert Gange, Democratic candidate for our, to
0: be here. New York City. Pleased to be here. Hey, Bob. So uh, tell us, you know, to start off, what's your sort of elevator pitch for your for your candidacy? The, we're
2: a campaign that's promoting social, racial, and economic justice for all New Yorkers across a range of e- issues policing, public schools, public transportation, homelessness, affordable housing. Uh, We're running in part because de Blasio has failed to deliver on his promises uh, from his 2013 campaign to address these issues effectively, to rewrite the Tale of Two Cities narrative. He's failed in those efforts. He's failed as a progressive, and we're challenging him, and we're putting forward a series of proposed reforms that we think are meaningful and far-reaching.
1: Are you trying to win or cast a message?
2: The, both. I mean, the we know that we're clearly underdogs. We're long shots, uh, given uh, uh, lack of resources in particular. Um, and uh, so we definitely want to send a message. We definitely want to push the debate uh, to the left, for want of a better term. We want to make it more politically acceptable to discuss very specifically and substantively what steps the city has to take to address uh, social and racial and economic inequities in the city. De Blasio has failed to do that, and we want to win. Um, again, recognizing that we're uh,
0: underdogs, uh, but all the world loves an underdog. So three months from primary day. Right. Uh, give us a little bit of sort of your thinking as to if winning is is a goal, is the goal. Mm-hmm. Um what do you think the main steps are that you have to take or what has to happen for you to have that shot?
2: Right. The uh, It's a good question. Um, the You know, I'm not sure. I mean, it, clearly we have to achieve liftoff. Uh, we have to sort of break through more to, I think, the mainstream media. We have to get our name to be more in our the issues more alive and well on social media um, and the we are uh, putting forward maybe oh. uh, the mayor conceding <laughs> or, or you think the very yeah. fact that you guys are here interviewing me was probably the thing that put him over the edge right <laughs> um, sorry about that uh, so that's our challenge and we have a variety of strategies to pursue it um, a friend of mine who was helping me petition um, uh, on Saturday said, "You have to, you have to have a big rally. You have to get a famous celebrity to perform, and then you speak to this rally." So I said, "If we, if we advertise Beyonce and Springsteen, and then at the last minute said." They couldn't make it. Do you think we could get away with that? So, so. Um, but we, we are reaching out to famous people, famous journalists, who we think support our agenda and uh, are likely to support our agenda, and to see if they would pick up the cause.
1: So this is your first run for elective office, right? You're a career politician. Right. Tell us about your career before this. What's right. the, the Bob? Well, I.
2: Point? Born and raised in Brooklyn, and moved to Manhattan after I graduated college. And I went to college in Manhattan. I went to Columbia, so I'm a lifelong New Yorker. Uh, care deeply about uh, my city. I was politicized uh, um, by a number of things in my life. Uh, uh, a lot of it was the politics of the '60s, because that's when I came of age. Uh, Recognized the terrible inequities in our country regarding race and poverty. Um, And like a lot of young people in the 60s, made a decision to devote, to the extent that we could, our life and careers to those issues. Also personally, my old man had multiple sclerosis um, all my life, and I think in ways that I wasn't conscious of at the time, since I couldn't help him, you know, I couldn't do anything to stop the progress of the disease, I think that instilled in me, again unconsciously, this strong desire to fix things and make things better for people. Um, And I've worked, uh, uh, my two uh, jobs previous to running for office was one at the Correctional Association of New York, a prison reform organization, so I became very familiar with the problems with the criminal justice system and the deep, deep injustices uh, uh, that are inflicted on mainly low-income people of color by our sentencing policies and police policies and imprisonment policies. And then for the last six years before declaring for mayor, I ran an organization called PROP, the Police Reform Organizing Project, that aimed at uh, exposing and ending abusive and discriminatory policing. And when de Blasio won in 2013, uh, we at PROP, my organization, were very hopeful. We were encouraged. And sort of interesting for me to look back on that history, because when he appointed Bratton, a number of people said de Blasio is uh, going down the road that all mainstream politicians do. You make promises you're not going to follow through because Bratton was, as you guys know, Mr. Broken Windows. And a group formed right away, uh, New Yorkers against Bratton. <laughs> and I disagree with that strategy. I'm uh, uh, very friendly with Joe Zemar Trujillo, who's a key activist and one of the people behind the New Yorkers against Bratton. I said, you've got to give him a chance. Um, uh, You've got to see what they're going to do. There's going to be a lot of political pressure on them to change things. So they did reduce the use of stop and frisk, but what they didn't do um, was change the fundamental approach of law enforcement in New York City. It's broken windows. It targets every low long-income people of color. I used to say, in our view, the policing in New York City is racist. I don't say in our view, it's just racist. There's no denying it. The numbers show it. People's experience show it. So by June of the first year, we had been you know, completely disenchanted with their policing policies. We knew what they were going to do politically, and uh, de Blasio continues to do it uh, during the campaign. Well, we reduced the use of stop and frisk. What are you complaining about? Um, so the the driving issue for me initially was policing, um, because it it does <laughs> it inflicts a trauma on individuals and it inflicts a trauma on a community, and the part of the painful recognition when you think about it and study it is while broken windows as a philosophy of policing is new. And it creates this overlay of our intellectual uh, defense for the kind of policing that goes on. Policing in New York and, of course, the country has always been racist. The police department was established in 1845, and one of its purposes was to contain two unruly populations, recent Irish immigrants and freed black people, because New York State uh, abolished slavery in 1827. And, it does de Blasio's
1: poll numbers among blacks and Latinos are, are fairly strong. I know. Uh, maybe not quite as strong as they were four years ago, uh, mm-hmm. but, but, but very, very strong. Given that those communities are so affected by the problems you're talking about, mm-hmm. and in your words, by the persistence of some policies that exasperate them, mm-hmm. why do you think he still runs so strongly, at least in the polls, in those communities?
2: Yeah, it's another good question. Um, the I think there are a number of factors. Um, the One is that he has a black family. I think that to use a term that has fallen into disrepute, that trumps a lot of things. Um, and I think the other thing is that, and I'm, this is, you know, I'm being speculative. The other thing is, in my experience working with black and Latino people uh, in New York City, and I have for virtually all my career in one way or another, they, there's a, a resignation Um, Not, I think it's changing, to the way police treat them. Um, When I was at the Correctional Association, I was part of a campaign uh, promoting the repeal of the Rockefeller drug laws. It was called the Drop the Rock campaign. And we'd have these wonderful meetings, uh, 30, 40 people, and at least some of the people were African-American, Latino people. And occasionally the meeting would go off agenda, and we'd start talking about policing issues. And everybody had a story about what cops did to them, their children, their families. And the sense you had was there is no possibility that will ever change. It's just this is part of our life. We have to figure it out. We have to adjust to it. We have to, the famous uh, uh, um, uh, anecdote that the Blasio got in trouble for. We have to talk to our children, particularly to our boys and our young men, about how to avoid problems with the police. Uh, but they had hoped they could change the Rockefeller drug laws and that 's part of the that 's part of the reason that the organizing was effective because the people we engaged believed that they could be effectively politically, so you know the whole thing when Obama was talking about hope, it resonated with me because I think it is meaningful uh, people have hope, and then they 're going to be more likely to be mobilized and organized. I think on policing issues in uh, New York City, I think that probably and again this is speculative a lot of people in our inner cities. Don't blame de Blasio for what happens day to day. We, of course, they should blame him because he runs the police department. Broken windows and the quota system could be ended literally on day one. You direct the police department to stop it. It's what the cops did themselves when they then went on that work slowdown at the end of 2014 and 2015. They stopped uh, abiding by the quota system, and they stopped engaging in broken windows policing. Arrests dropped by 66 percent, summonses dropped by 90 percent, and crime went down. Uh, and I think a large reason why the cops did it was not only their anger at the Blasio, was they prefer that.
0: I mean, broken windows policing and the quota system, for sure, is not popular among police officers. So, you know, you mentioned the reduction in stop and frisk. A lot of that was dropping... Very quickly mm. at the end of the Bloomberg administration, in part because of things that Bill De Blasio was was part of. He wasn't the leader, but you know yeah. the, the lawsuits and and the marches and such.
2: And at one <clears throat> one high level uh, retired police official said it was the cops themselves getting it. You know, mm-hmm. seeing the
0: handwriting on the wall that this was a discredited practice. It had built to a yeah. right to a right. point where it wasn't sustainable any longer. But so so there's that piece. But um, you know, if someone from The mayor's office or the mayor's campaign or the mayor himself was here, and he has numerous times, he would say, It's not just the reduction of stop and frisk. We're doing neighborhood policing. We've agreed to lessen penalties on many of these low level offenses. But I'm just, you know, I'm I'm giving you, he has a litany of, let's say, a half a dozen things that he says show that he's a reformer. Now, I think a lot of what we're talking about in this campaign, both from yourself and others who are unhappy with, the mayor from mm-hmm. the left is the difference between sort of being a, um, a reformer with incremental steps versus sort of a revolutionary. And, mm-hmm. and that's what it seems like. I don't want to label yeah, you, yeah. but. Well, what's the, the there's a couple there? of things.
2: One of the things that's striking in, a, uh, in the article in the Observer today about de Blasio being criticized from the left, he again is making the claim, apparently, that we have ended marijuana possession arrests. And it's just not true. Last year, the cops arrested over 18,000 people for marijuana possession. Uh, the first three months of this year, there were over 5,000 arrests for the sale and possession of small amounts of marijuana. So um, one of his claims is just flatly untrue. And the, the, the reason we're still critical after these incremental steps, one is the drop and stop and frisk is real and substantive. And as far as it goes, that's a good thing. Many of the other things are meaningless. Cops don't necessarily follow them. They don't really change in terms of what the impact is on people on the ground. The main reason we um, continue to be severely critical, there's two. One is that he's hypocritical. He's claiming that he has significantly changed things, and he hasn't. Law enforcement in New York City continues to target low-income people of color every day. The uh, the prop, my old organization, still does court monitoring work, and they did court monitoring in uh, Manhattan Criminal Court last Wednesday. I wanted to go. I wasn't able to go because of some campaign activities. And the uh, young woman who went, it was an intern prop, reported 19 out of the 20 cases of people of color. The arrest, suspended license, petty larceny, marijuana possession. Same old crap. And the reason we so aggressively criticize these practices is not technical. It's not because they're illegal. They are, I think, often or unconstitutional. Is they hurt people. And when you say, well, as obviously de Blasio does and people defend them, well, we've reduced this to a certain degree, you're still hurting people. You're harming people every day and you're harming people who are vulnerable, who are virtually politically powerless, and it is inexcusable. And it's our, excuse me, fucking city that you were doing this in, and running as a progressive who cares about justice for those very constituencies. And we know, uh, uh, Ben, uh, a little bit to take issue with your the word revolutionary, we don't think it's revolutionary. If you stop broken windows policing, which you could do uh, literally on day one, that's, to me, that's a fundamental reform. But it's manageable, it's doable, and the police department could carry it out. And it would make a significant difference in the day to day lives of the constituencies that uh, De Blasio claims he cares about and that we should all care about. Another issue um, to uh, take a jump into another issue area is uh, public education. So we knew uh, at my campaign that we couldn't just be a one issue uh, campaign. Uh, um, not only because it's not sufficient to galvanize the people, but we wanted to address other issues where we saw similar problems in terms of social and racial inequities. And in the public school system, it's clear. um, What the research shows that more often than not, the schools that are attended mainly by black and Latino students are going to be more dilapidated, have younger teachers and less services than schools attended by middle-class white kids. Um, We also learned, I learned, uh, uh, because I spoke to some experts, that there is one factor that all the research shows and common sense tells you can change the outcome, academic outcomes, not only for middle-class children or children who come from families with resources, but low-income children uh, of color, small class size. And so we're putting forward uh, that one of our priorities will be a very aggressive campaign to have small classes in all public schools. And um, that would provide, and again, there's a Mac truck. Load of research that documents this that would provide for significant improvements, significantly better lives for the students who now go to those schools. So no.
1: here's a question: Just of, you know, there, that and you mentioned you are not a one-issue candidate. You also mm. talk about providing free metric cards for low-income right. people. I think you also have an infrastructure plan, right? Uh, small class sizes as well. All of that obviously costs some money. And so the mm. cliche question, is, mm. it's a good one, is how are you going to pay for all? Right.
2: That? I have two answers or three. One is shut up. <laughs> sometimes I even include a vulgarity in that there. Um, two answers uh, one is and again I came of age politically in the 60s and I was a big fan of Robert Kennedy and in his uh, last campaign in 68 uh, before he was killed he would frequently I think it was actually part of a stump speech it was a George Bernard Shaw quote uh, something along the lines of some people see things As they are at, ask why. and that's why other people see things that never were and ask why not and that is a political uh, sort of point of view and spirit that animates our campaign um, and so part of my answer is to that question and I'll get more specific in terms of money is given what we know how much small class size would improve the lives of people across the city and not just low-income people of color, or that would be the main group that benefits, but it would benefit everybody in the city. How do we not do it? Um, and then the other question is, we will significantly reduce some of the expenditures that the Blasio in the city has allocated to other things. As you guys know, in this year's budget, there's $1.1 billion to design new jails. We're not going to build new jails. We can close Rikers without building new jails. Um, There's uh, $2.5 billion for the trolley or the train connecting the Brooklyn and Queens waterfronts. It's $275 million to build a new police academy. Uh, We would take all those things out of the budget. Um, We would significantly reduce the resources now allocated for law enforcement, starting with policing. Once you end broken windows policing... And quota-driven, broken windows policing—that is the law enforcement practice carried out by the majority of police officers. Uh, And we think not only is it ineffective, we think it's abusive. Not think it is abusive and discriminatory. Um, So we would we we plan to significantly reduce the resources and personnel for policing, and that would lead to um, less resources needed across the board defense prosecution jails the closing of rikers and the reduction of the jail population would save hundreds of millions of dollars on its own and the reason we think we can close rikers in a year um, is the and you guys probably know this about seventy percent of the people in rikers are pre trial detainees ninety percent of them have not even charged are not even charged with predatory dangerous crimes The sentenced inmates are all charged with very low level or convicted of very low level offenses. A significant portion of the Rikers population could be um, uh, removed from the jails without any risk to public safety. Uh, With bail reform. Well, not only bail reform. No, no. Just not arresting. Right. First First of all, not arresting. Mm -hmm. Also, it's interesting if you're following the Brooklyn DA race, how many Brooklyn DA candidates are talking about ending broken windows and promoting bail reform. Well, the DAs have a choice not to propose bail, mm-hmm. and the current DA is not doing that. We sit in the Brooklyn courts, and he can end bro- he can end prosecution of broken windows policing tomorrow just by telling his his assistant DAs somebody comes in here on one of these low level charges. Don't we're not going to prosecute. You know, we're going to come up with some other way to respond to these problems. Another thing you mentioned, uh, Jarrett, the where it really exposes uh, de Blasio's claim to be progressive. He's refused to support even reduced fare for low-income people in the city. Uh, You know, some cockamamie rationale. Yeah, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. um, And it's really a head-scratcher why he doesn't, uh, uh, because it would be politically advantageous, plus it would be a good thing. Um, So in effect, though, what the city policy is is since the fair evasion is the second most common arrest, marijuana possession is the fourth most common arrest, is the city punishes people who are jumping to turnstile or attempting to jump to turnstile. And no one could have a productive life in New York City. It's not even uh, an exaggerated statement unless you can use the subways and the buses in New York City. So by punishing people who are jumping to turnstile, primarily because they're too poor, they're not jumping to turnstile for the thrill of it, and instead you arrest them or you summons them, um, you are basically applying a regressive practice that criminalizes poverty to a group of people where another policy is available to um, uh, enable them to take the subways and take the police and law enforcement out of their lives. And that's why we're promoting free fare for low-income people. Uh, And also... um, 92%, 92%, this is their own numbers, 92% of the people that the NYPD arrests for fair evasion in the last two or three years have been New Yorkers of color. So it's another racist practice. Uh,
0: so, so Jarrett, when, when you were talking about uh, class sizes, Jarrett sort of got at this about where's the money come right. from, and you answered, you know, you, you had some ideas about right. moving some budget money around. Right. So, my question is a little bit larger than that. But let me,
2: the other thing is to galvanize the city around it. Nobody, as far as I can see, no mainstream politician says we can take a major step to fix the problem with the public schools mm-hmm. by having small classes in every school. And, and I think there's some of our positions are controversial amongst the broader public. Some of our position around policing would be controversial. I don't think small class sizes would be controversial. People might worry about well, where the money going to come from.
0: People say, yeah, small class sizes would really work. Right, you find almost no one who would... Be yeah, against right, that. Right. However, there are some people who say it doesn't actually matter as much as the quality of the teacher, but we can see no, no, that I, another I time. But
2: no, no, I agree. Quality of teachers yeah. is very important. It's just, just from a systemic point of view, in terms of a solution, guaranteeing quality of teachers in every class is more of a difficult challenge. Right. But Spirous. reducing the size Spirous. of the class
0: is, in, in my view, manageable and would improve outcomes. So we only have a few more minutes. There's sure. plenty more we could discuss. Yeah. But um, I have two more questions from you. Jared might have another question or two. But my first one is sort of zooming out from that question about where do you get the money and how do you do the class sizes. Are you prepared? Would you be prepared to run this city, to run a city that has an $85 billion budget, that has this sprawling bureaucracy and these agencies for whatever faults you want to cite with Bill de Blasio? The public advocate's office is obviously very, very small, but you know he sort of had this governmental trajectory of city council, public advocate, familiarity with all the inner right. workings of government. Right. Um, maybe that didn't <laughs> translate into great management, as many of his critics would say. Right. But are you prepared to be mayor?
2: Yes. Uh, it's actually a question that people ask me: Do you really want to be mayor? <laughs> well, that's different. That's actually very different. <laughs> uh, but I, I, want to, and I'm prepared to, because it's very important for these things to happen. And if I became mayor, we would make progress toward all these things. And the, and I understand the question about you know I ran an organization, fifteen to twenty people, the, the correctional association. But the, my judgment about leadership and even management doesn't go to how often you've done it before, uh, but goes to temperament and judgment about people. Uh, The key thing that I did well at the Correctional Association, and it took me a while, I was there for 29 years, was hire good people uh, and people not only who were very talented and very energetic and politically committed, but people who were team players and would cooperate and collaborate with other people. That was like a requirement. Uh, and so I would apply some of that sensibility and judgment to uh, my work as mayor. And also, the uh, I think we all know, and it's not anything we've emphasized in our campaign. I mean, de Blasio is roundly criticized for his management style. Uh, I've talked to, I mean, the press has written stories about it. I've talked to a number of people who worked in city government who left very frustrated because it took way too long to make a decision. And there were memos going back and forth from the agency people to the political people. And their criticism was the political people often trumped the agency people and what the agency people
0: wanted, wanted to do.
2: And we would not be bogged down by things like that.
0: There's a... A lot more to ask sure. on that and, yeah. and other, you know, I'm interested. We'll talk again, you know, about if you have people in mind that you would want to run certain agencies and mm-hmm. how that would indicate. But we'll, we'll get back to it. My, my last question for now, and, you know, this is... I'd be of, happy to talk about that. This is right? down, Yeah, we, we will. Yeah. This is on the sort of the opposite side of that question I just asked is the mayor, as I think you've acknowledged, is kind of a, a almost a lock for... Um, Re-election, you know, he's very heavily favored in the primary. Right. Um, are you worried about sort of hurting him in the primary and giving his general election opponent again? Maybe your campaign takes off, mm-hmm. but is that a concern you have?
2: Well, you know, I've thought about that. My my bigger concern, and I'll get to the concern about damaging De Blasio, uh, is that we don't get a sufficient lift off for our campaign. Uh, so that people could say, well, look, you know, Ganji made this effort, he had some people behind him, and clearly there are not enough New Yorkers who care about these issues, who want to eliminate racism from the police department, who want to provide uh, decent housing for homeless people and poor people, who want to provide better education, free fares uh, on the subways and the buses. Um, uh, some concern about hurting de Blasio, and for me it's a mix, um, and it's clearly become a stronger negative view since I declared and since the Blasio was in effect become my political opponent, is he damages progressivism. Uh, he claims to be progressive. He wears that mantle easily. Most of the press keep calling him progressive, and he's not progressive. Um, the, the two progressive things that he has done since he's been mayor, is the universal pre-K, and as you guys probably know, if you ever ask anybody why you're endorsing or supporting de Blasio, that's what they say. They forget, or often, because I've been in um, uh, debates at the clubs where uh, a surrogate for him is talking. They forget the other thing that he's done that I think has been a good thing is, is keep the rents down uh, for people in rent stabilized apartments. That's it. Um, on issues like reduced fare for low-income people. He takes what I consider to be an aggressive position because he's not supporting it. Uh, This issue now where he's at odds with Melissa Margarito, he has the nerve to say we're not going to defend people because they were convicted of a felony. And it could have been, who knows, five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, they did their time. And he's saying we don't want to provide lawyers for them. That is a regressive position. He doesn't have any serious position promoting diversity in the public schools. As you guys probably know, we came out with a plan last week. He wouldn't even have a press conference about it, and neither did Carmen Farina have a press conference about it. He supports and promotes racist policing. Um, uh, His affordable housing plan and they keep claiming that he's provided affordable housing, once you, uh, again, look behind the rhetoric and see what actually they've delivered on, most of the housing units that they're building in low-income communities are not going to be affordable for the people in those communities. He's not a true progressive. And he damages, in my judgment, the progressive movement and the, the principle that we could have progressive policies Based on social and racial and economic justice that could galvanize a broad public, uh, he has not attempted to do that. He is uh, essentially a mainstream opportunistic politician, uh, and so the the so I am not as upset or concerned about the possibility that we could do such significant damage to him that he may not win re-election against whoever the Republican is. Um, Uh, but in part it's time will tell time will tell whether he moves uh, more aggressively to be a true progressive or how regressive uh, and and Trumpian whoever the Republican candidate is Uh, well time will indeed
1: tell and I'm glad we have three more months to talk about it because there's a lot more we could discuss but thank you for getting us
2: started again pleased to be here thank you guys
0: So we just said goodbye to Bob Ganji, Democratic candidate for mayor, and this is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, still with Jarrett Murphy from City Limits. Uh, Jarrett, your first thoughts on the interview with Bob?
1: Well, you know, I think uh, progressives and conservatives, too, often get into a debate over nomenclature. Is somebody progressive? Are they not? Uh, Bill is a progressive. The question is if he's progressive enough, and I think Bob Ganji is very well equipped to ask that question that's a very important question. And I think he is prepared to talk about it, obviously, in the criminal justice context. But I thought it was interesting that he moved the conversation to, uh, to transit and to education as well. Uh, you know, I think that there is no question who Ganji is. I mean, he is a candidate of uh, a very, very radical uh, leftist. And I say that as, as one of those, <laughs> someone who attempts to be critique of the way things are going. And, uh, you know, I don't think that he necessarily will sell the case uh, that the needs to be replaced, but it is a good thing in an otherwise quiet campaign season that someone is asking those questions because they really are on people's minds.
0: Right. The only other sort of significant voice in the Democratic primary is Sal Albanese, who we'll have on at some point, um, we hope, we think. Um, we'll be inviting him soon. And so... Um, You know, pretty much everybody agrees it's good for the mayor to be pushed in the primary as well as a general if he he advances, Um, and Ganji is certainly the voice of the sort of disaffected, dissatisfied far left who thought de Blasio was more of a, a game changer than... They think he's turning out to be. There's many people sort of in the middle and to the right in this city who think de Blasio has been a revolutionary. So it's just fascinating in terms of where you sit on the political spectrum, what you think of this mayor. What's interesting, of course, is that you hear from across the political spectrum some critiques of de Blasio about management and ethics and things like that which Sal Albanese will probably cover for us very well when we, when we interview him.
1: I think so. As a matter of fact, as we speak, or uh, today as we are taping, Albanese is unveiling uh, more details of his MTA plan. Uh, that's something we'll be following this week. In other news, we're looking at the City Council holding a hearing Wednesday on the POST Act, which is an attempt to force the NYPD to be more transparent about the kinds of electronic surveillance and digital spying technology it plans to buy, and the rules it plans to put in place to make sure that privacy uh, considerations are, are taken into consideration.
0: And that's a really interesting issue because it's another one of these things where there's been a city council bill that the NYPD has immediately pushed back on, which has been a pattern forever, obviously. But it's fascinating when it's a pattern under this mayor who has again talked of himself as an NYPD reformer and talked for the need of transparency. And then there's, you know, questions around some of that. Um, for us at Gotham Gazette this week, We're certainly looking at Albany. There's seven days of legislative session left. There's a lot of New York City business on the table. Uh, We don't know what's going to get done. Lots of folks are saying it's going to be minimal, potentially, because so much was done in the state budget in April. Uh, But the mayor certainly wants an extension of mayoral control of city schools. This has been an annual thing that I think almost everybody's pretty sick of, but we're seeing the usual round of op-eds and press conferences and such to push the Senate Republicans to give him that. And then we're going to be looking at, well, what else does the city and the de Blasio administration want from Albany before they wrap up their business for the year?
1: Yeah, I think a question I would love Albany legislatures who are resisting on mayoral control to answer is, how do you expect a mayor to create plans that are not spastic, that are not merely meant for the moment, when at any point in the past few years he's not known that he's going to be running the school system more than 11 months and 30 days from that point? Right. Uh, I just don't understand the rationale. But yeah. we'll see this week whether uh, people can come up with an answer to that.
0: Yeah, and look for us uh, in the coming weeks with other mayoral candidates.